All right. Happy Sabbath, church. Thank you, Karen, so much for that. That was beautiful. Well, Jesus welcomes you, and we welcome you. Today's sermon title is God Will Take Care of You. And so I hope it will be a blessing and uplifting. Many, maybe even all, of this era that were of age remember the news flash that came across their TV. The message was clear and concise, but it was so stunning that it seemed mysterious, almost cryptic. The president is dead. John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. The place was Dallas, Texas, and it was 1963, November 22nd to be exact. Glenn Hill, an eyewitness, in fact, he was the one assigned as an agent to Mrs. Kennedy, tells his candid personal account this way. The reason the president was in Texas was because in 1960, he won by only a slim margin. And the Democrats knew they had to get a couple of the southern states with a large electoral amount of votes. And so they targeted both Florida and Texas. Prior to the shooting, the president had said, I don't want any of you guys hovering over the vehicle. I don't want anybody between me and the people. Officer Hill continued, as we drove down Daly Plaza, we turned from Houston Street onto Elm Street. We made a left-hand turn at this point. We were traveling down Elm Street about 120 feet when I heard an explosive noise over my right shoulder. The president grabbed at his throat. He moved to his left. I knew something was wrong. I jumped out of my position in the follow-up car and ran towards the presidential vehicle. It was then that a second shot rang out and as I was nearing the presidential vehicle, the third shot was fired. That shot hit the president in the rear of the head. Then what happened was the president's wife stood up in the rear of the car. I quickly pushed her back down. And when I did, the president's body fell to the left with his head in her lap. I assumed it was a fatal wound, and I turned and gave a thumbs-down motion to the agents in the follow-up car to make sure they were aware of the situation. Well, it's a compelling story. It's one that we all know of, even if we weren't in that era. And to be in that era, I'm sure it was just frightening indeed. And of course, there have been many, many documentaries, books written with conflicting evidence from personal testimonies, from the Warren Commission, and even the House Select Committee on Assassinations, to mention a few. It was indeed a scary, sad, uncertain time, much like the time in which Isaiah wrote chapters five and six that we're going to look at today. But in the midst of troublous, uncertain times, with the nation seemingly out of control and spiraling downward toward destruction. This is in Isaiah's day. Isaiah saw something. He saw something awe-inspiring. He saw something that filled him with hope for his day and for ours. Let's pray. 
Father of ours, we're grateful that there is hope in every situation because sitting on the throne is no president, is no king, but on the heavenly throne sits the Lord of hosts. We're so grateful for that, that today God will take care of us. Speak to us through your word today. May we be encouraged. May we understand the times in which we live and help us to be compelled to go out and share the gospel with others before it is too late. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5 this morning. And Isaiah 5 will set the scene for the hope that we're going to look at in Isaiah chapter 6. But Isaiah 5 is not a pretty picture. But it does set the context for Isaiah chapter 6 when, of course, the, the year that King Uzziah died. And so there's that parallel to the death of John F. Kennedy, that type of situation. We're going to look at the beginning of chapter 5 where there's this prophetic poem. And most poems are happy poems. You would say this is more of a funeral poem for Israel. And then... What Isaiah does next, what God does next through Isaiah is he sort of fleshes out what does it mean that this vineyard is the house of Israel. And so there are six woes in chapter 5. We're going to look at those. There's actually seven woes, but the next one doesn't come until chapter 6 when Isaiah pronounces woe upon himself. So we'll look at that also. But there in chapter 6 is where we find the hope as we see the holiness of God, as we see the only response that can happen when you see God high and lifted up, and that is humility. And then we see the healing and power given to Isaiah. And then, of course, the humble human response, here am I, send me. So that's sort of an outline, and so if you're not in Isaiah chapter 5 yet, turn there now. And we will look at this poem given to us, and then we'll look at these six different woes. But first, the poem. I've got the King James rendering this morning. Now I will sing to my beloved, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. So we have the beloved that Isaiah is talking about. This is Jesus. This is God. And we have the vineyard, which is the house of Israel. Going on, my well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof. How many of you have gardens or do larger farming? Doesn't it seem like every year you get a new crop of rocks? I mean, it's like, where did these rocks come from? Every year there's a new crop. Well, this land was very well taken care of. The stones were gathered out. It was fenced. It was in a very fruitful hill. And the choicest vine was planted there, verse 2 says. And he built a tower in it, in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, but it brought forth what? 
Sour grapes, wild grapes, worthless grapes. Some versions say stinking grapes, unedible grapes. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to it? Whereof that I looked and expected to bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And so we see the love of God for his people, the beloved's love for his vineyard. He did everything possible. Verse five, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they do not rain upon it. And then if you had any doubt as to who this is talking about, verse seven makes it abundantly clear. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So this is the story of Israel in the time of Isaiah. And it's not a pretty story. This is the story in which he was called to the ministry when these things were happening. And it's an interesting time because during this reign, finances were good. Everybody was doing well. But unfortunately, the outward prosperity was not accompanied by a corresponding revival of spiritual power. Sometimes we think, well, finances are going well. Everything must be going well. God is blessing. Not always. <laughs> not always. Well, this is the song of Isaiah, the song of God to Israel. Not a happy song, is it? Almost a funeral dirge to speak of. And so what are the parameters? What is it that God exactly was talking about? Well, now he spells it out in the next six woes that we'll look at. Things that were going on in that time, we have them listed here. And you might see parallels to America today. Unbridled materialism, drunken pleasure-seeking, daring, defiant sinfulness, redefining evil and good. Intellectual pride and corrupt judges, those who have hated the law and despised the word. Let's take a look at those. Starting in verse 8 is the first one. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. It's like they're just adding house after house after house. And pretty soon they're like standing on this little world of their own. This is woe number one, unbridled materialism. And we ask, have to ask the question to make it relevant to our time. What would you do to get that big promotion? Lie? Cheat? betray a friend? Or what would you do to acquire that next big piece of property? Oh, that great deal. 
Would you deceive or lie to the owner about its real value? Well, the story is told of a man that was so anxious to get his inheritance that he knocked off his parents. That's right, killed his parents, only to find that he didn't get the inheritance anyway because he got a quite long jail sentence. But this is the time in which we live, unbridled materialism. And you might say, well, I think right now we're in unbridled inflation, Pastor, and you would be right. But materialism is a problem, and it's one that plagues America. Look on in verse 9. In my ears said the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair without inhabitant, yet or yea, 10 acres of vine shall yield one bath, super small, like four gallons of grape juice for 10 acres. And the seed of an omer shall yield an ephah. So terrible yield from the crops. And you know, the saying is true. Better is to have a little with God's blessing than a lot without it. Amen? It's just this never-ending cycle. You can never get enough when you're just after materialism all the time. Well, the second woe is in verse 11. Woe unto them that rise early in the morning that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. And while they're doing all this drinking, they've got plenty of music going on. And the harp, the vial, the tablet, the pipe, and wine are in their feast, but they regard not the work of the Lord important. Neither consider the operation of his hands. Well, if that was just going on out in the world, that would be bad enough. But verse 13 says, therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. And isn't that the way it works, right? Those that are always partying and always drinking, again, there's never enough. You never get to a point where, yeah, that's enough, unless you're passed out, right? I mean, otherwise, you're, you're going for more. And that's why marijuana is so dangerous, right? Now it's legal. But marijuana most often leads to something else and something else and something else, often to the very destruction of the person. And so that second woe is regarding drunken pleasure seeking. Verse 14, I love how one translation puts it this way. Therefore, Hades has enlarged his appetites and has stretched open his mouth without measure. And down go her nobility and her populace and her busy throng and all that exalt in her Unfortunately, I think we see parallels to what Israel was doing to our nation today. Goes on, verse 15. And the mean man shall be brought down, the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. Skip now to verse 18, because we're going to look at the third woe, or the third ruined, as woe means. And... In case you thought it couldn't get any worse with the drunken pleasure-seeking, it gets worse in verse 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. 
Now what we have here is a small cord growing into a bigger cord, which is telling us how sin just continues to proliferate. That's what was going on. Verse 19, and here's where it gets really bad. They say, let him make speed. They're talking about God now. Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. Wow. This is pretending that God will not punish sin and hence they plunge deeper into it. Please don't get caught in that trap. But they go further. In a daring, insolent, rude, disrespectful manner, they defy him and ask him to punish them. Give us your best shot, God. You're not going to do anything. What are you going to do? Swallow me up? Please, please don't put God to the test. It is difficult to conceive anything more dreadful and high-handed than this. Asking for God to show himself against their sins. Lord, have mercy is all I can say. Verse 20, we have the fourth woe. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The world is like upside down, right? We don't know what's good and what's evil in the world today unless you're connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You'll not get that from the world around you. You must get that from God alone. In fact, rashness is called courage. And prudence? Oh, he's just so timid. Treachery? He's clever. Honesty? Stupid. We're in an era in which people do not know right from wrong. We have this relativism, right? There's no real standard. Everything's on sort of a sliding scale. We call evil good and good evil. We're speaking of those moral relativists of the day who pervert the moral standards. The Wizard of Oz, how many of you remember or have heard of that, right? We've heard of that and there's a story in there. Remained popular for many years. People of all ages have learned the lessons from Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion as they traveled down the yellow brick road. Of course, in the plot line, was the great enemy to be overcome. Who was that? The Wicked Witch of the West, right? Evil is clearly depicted and overcome by good. That's a clear message, at least. But a new Broadway musical turns the moral sense of the original story on its head. And this is kind of emblematic of our society today. In the rewriting of the story, the Wicked Witch is presented as a sympathetic character, born with green skin. She feels like an outsider. Major characters, plot lines, roles, and other details are altered so that the Wicked Witch is really just misunderstood, not evil. The audience might come away with the idea that evil is good and good is evil. I love how 
Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks to this issue. He says this, he says, sin is very clever. It always brings forth its reasons. It doesn't just say do this or do that. It brings forth its reasons because after all, we like to think of ourselves as highly intelligent people. It gives us reasons for doing wrong and they appear so wonderful. Well, this is the fourth woe, calling good evil and evil good. And we definitely have that in our world today. Look at verse 21 now. So we look at the fifth woe. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Arrogant, conceited, full of themselves. Think they know everything about everything. Do you know anybody? No, don't raise your hand if you think you know somebody. But we need to not be those kind of people, right? Proud and unwilling to be instructed. That's the key thing. We always need to be learners in the school of Christ, amen? Waiting for what God will tell us, maybe through someone else. Well, the sixth woe is in verse 22. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Now, these are mighty ones or leaders we're talking about here. In the sixth woe, verse 23, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom shall go up as dust. Now, don't miss this last part. Crucial. Why? Because... They have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's a quick path to destruction, amen? Despising God's word and casting away his law. And yet it happens to nations, it happens to churches, it happens to individuals. And so, verse 25 declares this. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people. And he has stretched forth his hand against them and smitten them. The hills did tremble and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Please come back. God is saying <clears throat> to Israel, excuse me, in the midst of it all. Well, that's a pretty dark picture that we've painted, but that gives you the context now for chapter six. Remember, Isaiah is a young man, probably in his 20s. Uzziah has been the king for 52 years, and he was considered one of the good kings, even though he didn't end that well. <clears throat> But that's the situation we have now in chapter six. And here's where the hope comes in. Here's where we must see something that Isaiah also saw. It says this, it says, in the year that King Uzziah, is how you really should pronounce it, and that Yah at the end, it comes from Yahweh, the one who gains his strength 
from Yahweh. And he did most of the time. In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, or the train of his robe filled the temple. And so Uzziah was no longer on the throne. After 52 years, he became like a sort of a warm blanket, right, Uzziah? I mean, as long as he was there, people thought things were going well, even though underneath they weren't going well spiritually. But now he's not looking at the earthly throne. Which throne is he looking at? The heavenly throne. And who's sitting there? God himself. Amen. God sits on his throne today and he will take care of you. Come on and say amen if that's good news. God is on his throne. He's no longer looking to the earthly throne, to earthly kings, to earthly presidents. There's a God that sits on the heavenly throne and he will take care of you. He is high and lifted up in his train or the the train of his robe, sort of as an Eastern monarch, the picture is here, with a long flowing robe with many attendants surrounding him. And so he's high and lifted up. And his train fills the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, the shining or burning ones, each one having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet, and with two, he did fly. And that really is the whole story of this early part of Isaiah, right in these wings, if you look at it carefully. With two, he covered his face. That is humility. And we're going to see how Isaiah experiences that here momentarily. With two, he covered his feet. Or Ezekiel says, with two, he covered his body. And so we see the covering of the righteousness of Christ. And with two, he did fly. Here I am, send me. Going on here in chapter six now. We have this amazing picture of God. I mean, just picture, just think if God filled, if you could see God filling this whole place with his presence, right? Because that's what the picture is, right? If this long white robe was just covering just from corner to corner, God was in our midst in his holiness, and you could see it. God, high and lifted up. Well, now we have this song of antiphonal praise coming from these seraphim, which I think probably swells into a mighty chorus. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts the God who has all power to do you good, Yahweh Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. What an awesome scene. That we might understand and see the holiness of God, no attribute of God, is thrice repeated except this. Not love, 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 mercy, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. Nope. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Well, in the light of seeing such an amazing sight, what could Isaiah do? He did what anybody would do or could do in the sight of this. 
He said, woe to me. So here's that seventh woe, but now he's calling it on himself. For I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so we see holiness brings this humility, right? He sees himself. But God doesn't leave him there. He gives him healing and power. That's in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal or burning stone in his hand, which he had taken from the altar, likely of burnt offering, with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin. And so the gospel was preached to Isaiah. Come on and say amen if that's good news. Knowing that your sins are forgiven, that your guilt is taken away. And so we see holiness, humility, healing, and power. And then Isaiah's commission, Isaiah's response. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? The Godhead says, then I said, what? Send me, send me, send me. So this view of the holiness of God led to this humility. God gave him healing and power. And then he said, send me, <laughs> send me, I'm ready. Are you ready to be sent today? What do you say, church? Are you ready to be sent? God wants to send you somewhere, right? It could be your fellow workers at work. It could be at school. It could be in your home. But Battle Creek needs people sent to it. Amen? There are people starving all around. They're thirsty. They may be drinking themselves to sleep at night, but they're still thirsty. Partying will never satisfy what you have to give to them. Here I am, send me. Well, in 1893, I think times were very similar to our time. I think, it, you know, time goes back around, comes back around. I don't think we're quite where 1893 was because in 1893, Sunday laws were beginning to happen. We're not there quite yet, but I think we're close. And Ellen White wrote this poignant statement in, in 1893 that I'd like to share with you because I think this speaks to our time. She wrote it in March, March 7. We have no time to confer with flesh and blood. The power of Satan is in, apparently in the supremacy. He is seeking to convert all things in the world to his purpose to imbue human beings with his own spirit and nature. This is happening around us, my friends. The conflict will be terrible. 
The minds and hearts of men seem surcharged with hostility against divine revelation. The passions are stirred with envy against purity and holiness and devotion to God and his requirements. The will is set like granite against all that is called God or worshiped. Well, we better get to some encouragement before <laughs> the clock strikes noon, if it hasn't already. Of course, there's encouragement in this vision of Isaiah, right, that we see God, but I don't think this was just a, I mean, it's a one-time thing in the Bible, but I think for us to see God is something that we need to be doing on a regular basis, right? We need to see him. We need to understand his presence in our lives. How do you think the martyrs of old went through what they went through, burning at the stake and they're singing hymns? I think they understood that God was with them, amen? Not just somewhere, oh yeah, he's with me. No, no, like Moses, I think they saw the unseen with God being with them. And I think we must have this experience. God wants us to have this experience now because quite frankly, these are the easier times compared to what is to come. Going on, I'm now reading just briefly from a book called The Promise of the Spirit. And it says this, it seems to me that to us, as with Moses in his work, there should be now, in, in such a sense as never before, the idea of the personal presence of God in Christ. When Moses went to his work, all through his work, it was not simply that he believed in a God in heaven, but he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw him. And there was that sense of the reality of the personal presence of God with him so that in a most literal way, he not only believed in God, but saw God. How many of you would like to have that in your experience? Moment by moment, I sure would. And in all his experience, when the children of Israel turned against him and rejected his work, a murmuring and rebellious people, yet all the time, Moses had a sense of God with him. Well, what about us? Do we have promises that would lead us to believe that God is with us? What do you say? Of course we do. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Be of good cheer, God says. I have overcome the world. Be strong and of good courage. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That is his word. And so we may say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do to me. These scriptures, friends, need to be taken in a special literal sense, right? God is with us. And we need to experience that personal presence of his on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Oh, he's waiting to give us that experience, to show us the path of life. Psalm 1611 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Oh, that you might have that experience today that God is taking care 
of you. Our God has heaven and earth at his command. And he knows just what we need. You see, the problem with us is we can only see a little ways down the road, but not God, right? He knows the end from the beginning. As Hebrews says, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees the end of the road. We, we just see a little bit down the road. But above the distractions of the earth, he sits enthroned. All things are open to his divine survey. And from his great and calm eternity, he orders that which his providence sees best. Come on and say amen if that's good news. We can't see the end of the road. We see things and say, well, I, you know, it almost seems that God isn't with me or I wonder what God's doing. No, no, God has it under control. Amen. He sees to the end of the road. And if you could see what he saw, you would want him to do exactly what he's doing in your life. Well, I close with a story and we're not going to sing this song to close. But you know of the story and you know of the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer, businessman in Chicago. With a lovely wife and five children. However, they were not strangers to tears and to tragedy. And I know none of you are either. Some have had more than others. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost to the great fire in Chicago. Yet God, in his mercy and kindness, allowed their business to flourish once again. However, in 1873, just a few years later, Mrs. Spafford and the children, the four daughters, boarded a French ocean liner for a trip a vacation trip across the Atlantic to Europe. 308 passengers on board. Mr. Spafford had planned to go, but a last minute business situation had held him back. He told his wife that he would join her and the children in Europe a few days via another ship. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the French vessel collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship, the Loch Urn. Suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta, and prayed that God would spare them if it was his will, or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the ship that the Spafford family was on slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of its passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor rowing a small boat in the area spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna. She was still alive. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another larger vessel, which nine days 
later landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From there, she wired her husband a message which began with those famous words, saved alone. The children were gone. And was the family crushed? No, no. In fact, that's where this great song, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, now you see the imagery, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Well, Mr. Spafford hurriedly booked passage on the next available flight to join his grieving wife. And what they say is when the ship had gone about four days out, they were about in the area. The captain said, hey, this is about in the area where your kids went down, where the ship went down. And that it was right there that he wrote that famous hymn, or at least the title to it. It is well with my soul. <clears throat> Friend, I don't know what you've gone through. I know several of you and what you've gone through, and it's not been a pretty picture, but God is wanting to prepare us for the future. Amen? Things will get worse on this earth before they get better. I can't tell you otherwise as a minister of the gospel because that's the God honest truth. But God would have you to know his presence on a minute by minute basis, amen? Though the, the waves are boisterous, Christ is in the ship. And you can have the peace of God, even though situation around you is spiraling downward. And I wish you and I pray for you that peace today, that same experience that Moses had that you see the unseen with you. Friend of mine, God will take care of you. And he has taken care of you. So many of you are testimonies to God's amazing grace as he's shown to me through you what it looks like for God to take care of his children. Let's pray. Father of ours, we're grateful for Isaiah's vision in the midst of most troublous times, Isaiah saw you lifted up on your throne. The throne is not uninhabited. No matter who the president is or kings on this earth, we have a God in heaven who sits enthroned above it all. And from his calm eternity, he rules the providence of men. And indeed, Lord, if we could see down the road like you do, we would realize that you're doing just the best thing for your glory and for our best good. Strengthen your people today, Lord. May each one leave this place knowing that you will take care of them in any situation. So thank you, Lord, for your strength and for your courage and for your blessing upon your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.